Welcome to Vela Wood Office Hours. I'm Kevin. I'm Aaron. And today we're going to kick off our review of Venture Deals. Now, Venture Deals is a book by Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson. We're going to be using the third edition. The full title of the book is Venture Deals, Be Smarter Than Your Lawyer and Venture Capitalist. Seeing as how we're lawyers, Aaron, is this what we want to do? Do we want to encourage people to be smarter than us? Uh, that's a, I can say yes and no. That's um, a good lawyer answer. Yes, it depends. Okay. That's what I'm really trying to say. Uh, no, I, I think it's, you know, if you can have a situation where, you know, you're not having to spend as much time, you know, educating clients, investors, you know, the general public about venture deals. Yeah, that's great. But at the same time, there's a there's a little bit of uh, protectionism in me that makes me want to say, no, 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 we don't want anybody smarter than lawyers. I think, I think that this is going to be a great tool and a great resource for our clients. You know, Aaron, I think we're really good about directing our clients to certain blogs or things that we've written about venture to better understand it, or we send them to other venture-related resources. Because the more the client knows about a venture deal, the better, the easier it's going to be for us as we're shepherding through the process. Because if we can just focus more on the deal, the material terms, how their business is being operated, what's going to change, and not have to get into the weeds on analyzing the term sheet or the deal docs, right? that's just going to be better. So again, we're reviewing venture deals be Smarter Than Your Lawyer and Venture Capitalist by Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson. This is the third edition. Uh, Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson ran Foundry, which is a VC out of Boulder, and they've been doing this for a long time. They're both very well known in the space. Uh, really excited to read the book. So follow along with us. We're recovering one chapter a week for the next 16 weeks. There's 16 chapters. That would be 16 weeks. I got that part figured out. And we'll try and keep it to, I don't know, 20 to 30 minutes each one. Um, as always, we'll have show notes and other comments and resources in the, um, in the notes to each of these podcasts, which will be up on our blog page. All right, Aaron, you ready to get going? Let's go. Okay, so let's talk about chapter one. So first, I want to kick off with a question. Chapter one of the book is called The Players, which I thought would be something really cool, right? Like, ballers or something right. but it's not yeah uh, and i don't know if you can talk about ballers and venture maybe the venture guys like the venture uh yeah investors and, and, are well, ballers. And, and the the founders once they've had successful that's exits. true but the entrepreneurs the baby startups that we represent probably yeah. not though they think they are a lot of them are yeah. my first question for you is if i were to say aaron who are the key players in the venture environment what comes to mind for you I mean, I think right off the bat, the the two principal players have to be the founder or the entrepreneur and the investor. Um, you know, the, the the person wanting the money and the person that has the money. Yeah, I, I agree. But there are a lot of other ancillary ones, right? right? And I thought that this book did a good job of discussing those. And we're going to get into that in a few minutes. So let's talk about the first player, the entrepreneur. Now. Right off the bat, in the second page of the chapter, there was a paragraph which talked about, make sure you get a venture attorney, not just any lawyer. And it made the reference to having your dad's family law attorney is not good for your venture deals, which is something we see all the time. And I mean, yeah, and it's not just, you know, oh, you need to make sure you have a corporate lawyer because I mean, you know, uh, before I came to this firm, I practiced law for a year and a half doing corporate mergers and acquisitions. What I do now, pretty different from what I did then. And so, you know, it's not just having a corporate lawyer, it's having somebody who does venture deals day in and day out. 
I agree. Really important. We see this all the time. It's something we try to tell our clients, which really distinguishes us. I mean, look, there's a lot of fantastic corporate lawyers out there, but when you get into venture, you want someone who has the experience of negotiating these deals, um, having been seen both sides of it, because we are, you know, company side a lot, Aaron, and then investor side from time to time with all the uh, the funds that we represent. So I can add a lot of value. But as an entrepreneur, obviously the focus is going to be on you. The investment is. In your company, or yeah, the, the VCs make an investment in your company, but they're really making an investment in you. One thing that you can do to make that investment better, to make this process better, is to get educated about how venture deals work. And this book, so far, we've only, we're only one chapter into it, seems to be a great step towards doing that. There was a line that I underlined on page six of this thing, which is something that I see all the time. Uh, and it said, however, as time passes... The relationship between co-founders often frays. And I guess we need to clarify, when we talk about entrepreneur, obviously all the co-founders, right, are the entrepreneur here. But as time passes, the relationship between co-founders often frays. This could be due to many factors. And I felt like, Aaron, that this is something that we have said hundreds of times. I felt that they recorded us. I can't remember how many times we've said this in meetings, um, standing outside of pitch events or over the phone. It's just life happens, right? We tell our clients all the time, life happens. Stress of the business, competence, personality, but also changing life priorities like a new spouse or children, right? We yeah. see that all the time. Well, and that's why, you know, I think we push so hard our clients to get their founders agreements, get their vesting agreements in writing early on when everybody's happy, when, you know, you're just starting out and you're all you're saying is a business that in two years is going to be worth billions of dollars. Um, get everything in writing then so that, you know, when the relationship between and among the founders eventually starts to fray, they have something in writing that they can go back to and say, okay, here's what we agreed on when, when we started off. And I like the way this book set that up because they said, look, the relationship with your co-founder is really, really, really important. And people are going to leave for different reasons. Like you said, it's having writing. And that's why different sections of the term sheet are important, right? That's the, that's the um, utility of them in the future. But I thought that that was a great point about co-founders. We want to point that out. Guys, just because your co-founder is leaving doesn't necessarily mean you guys want to fight, right? Co-founders leave all the time, not for bad reasons or not for the wrong reasons. Now, they a lot of times they do leave because there's an issue. And so even before you get to the term sheet stage, as you mentioned, Aaron, it's important to have vesting on your on your stock and then uh, you know non-compete, non-solicitation agreements in place. All right. The next thing that they talk about, the next player here is the VC. Right. And they went pretty in depth into describing the VC, the different types of VCs or sizes of VCs, even how much one of those VCs might have under management, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. And I, I thought it was interesting too, because they, they make a point to say, you know, basically what you call your round doesn't really matter. You mm -hmm. know, you started out with series A, series B, series C, whatever. Uh, and then people started adding to the beginning of that list. And then that's when you got into the seed and all. So then to, to read their distinction between, you know, what a micro VC is versus what a, you know, an early stage fund is and to see the dollar numbers that they associate with it, it sort of made me think, well, no, I mean, you know, that's arbitrary, just like, you know, calling it a series B when it's really been your fourth, uh, your fourth round of fundraising. I've got two thoughts on that. One, I think our job would certainly be easier if everyone just said your first round was your A round, your next round is your B round. And if you get past Z, you just go to AA. Right. And you just keep going. And we just make it simpler for us rather than having the seed round and then you see pre-seed rounds or the safe round. 
Uh, you know, sometimes people call it the family round, and then you have your A round, but you're not ready for your B rounds. You call it your A one yes. or your A plus, right? Yes, we've seen these things. However, that just doesn't exist, and no one calls you or I when they're deciding how to name different rounds. Nope, I'm available. Yeah. If whoever sets round names wants to call us, yeah, and give us our opinion. Well, and, and for our hourly rate, also, yes, I mean, correct. we're lawyers. So. That's right. Uh, but it is helpful to understand as a whole if you're talking about these things, what they mean. I think this book uh, does a great job explaining those things. Typically, where we see things, Aaron, are you know the seed A and B round. You know, C is pretty late. C and D are pretty late. Once you get to E or F, I mean, you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. In finances. But then when you talk about fund size, right? Or VC right. size, you had your micro VCs and then kind of your different ones. You had your local and your national ones. And then also what I thought was interesting was seed stage funds and then the early stage, mid stage, late stage, right? right? I thought that was interesting because from the outside looking in, if you go talk to someone who's not in our industry, you just talk about venture capital, they all just think it's just all one thing, right? right. You just do venture capital. But really, most funds are pretty targeted. I don't think they just do early, but you see a lot of ones that do early, seed and early, or seed to mid. You don't see a lot of guys who would do a seed and a late stage. Right. Usually because they're not big enough. Well, and, you know, just like, you know, when you have a fund, you want to have a, a strong investment thesis that can sort of, you know, control what deals you're looking at. And, you know, it, it allows you to sort of develop um, expertise or, you know, specialization in a certain industry or a certain focus. Um, you know, just like that, you know, the people who, you know, work on seed deals or Series A deals all the time, it's going to be harder them harder for them to analyze a, a company or or an investment opportunity at a much later stage. Yeah, I agree with that. And a large fund that's doing late stage deals, they might have a hundred, you know, many hundred million dollar fund, five hundred million dollar fund. They're not going to get into the weeds on a five hundred thousand or a two million dollar investment, right? It's just right. too small. But also. The guys that do real early stage, it's a totally different risk tolerance because they understand that there really is no due diligence. When you're doing a late round, a C or D round, there's tons of due They have audited financials, for goodness sake. Right. They have hundreds of employees. They have customers that you can interview. They have tons of corporate record. They have a huge law firm who can you know produce everything into a, into a um, data room. When you're investing a million, $2 million in a real early stage company, maybe you know the top guy out of Techstars or something like that, what really is your due diligence? I mean, other than interviewing the founder to make sure the founders make sure they're not crazy, there's right. not a whole lot you can do there. Uh, other than have your, I guess you could have your founders docs nice and buttoned up. Right. right? That's a big yep. deal. Yep. Uh, so anyways, but there are different funds. I can tell you the funds that we work with, which are mostly on the smaller side, they typically are the early stage and the, um, the seed stage and early stage. You know, we've got one fund that we represent that really only does early stage. And they're very specific Series A, like you said. And that's their thesis. But also, we've come to find out the managing director has gotten to get... I mean, he's become very comfortable or very knowledgeable, right? Mm -hmm. About those stages, especially the different industries. And he can give you quotes on them. There's only so much you can read or follow. So he does that. And then the other fund that we represent, there's a drone flying I know. I saw that earlier. Do you think they're trying to get a picture of us? I think so. I think, you know, we talked about eventually, you know, video streaming right. our, our, our podcast. It? I think that's the beginning stage of that. We'll have to talk to our producer about that. Okay. But anyway, then we've got another fund who does mostly early stage, you know, A round. But this particular fund does like to do a lot of seed stage stuff. And they'll do a $250,000 safe note just to be in, to 
you know, take a flyer on it, but also to be involved in it, right? right? Because it's a lot easier to do a follow-on round. Well, and I think, you know, the the bigger the check earlier on, the more influence you can have in, you know, dictating or not dictating or pushing the company in That's the way right. that you want it to go. And yeah. so if you think, oh, you know, I, I have some really good experience or expertise in a particular industry and, you know, I might be valuable to this this startup, then, yeah, you can say, okay, well, great. I'll cut you a big check early on, but I want to have a seat at the table. I want to be, you know, on a board position. I want to, you know, advisor position, but I want something that will allow me to sort of not only protect my investment, but, you know, help the the success of the company more than just being a passive investor. So that's what I want to touch on is I don't want to, the, the book, I don't think really gets into this, but your VC, especially the later stage ones, are really going to be your partner, right? They, sh- they should be adding a lot more value other than just money. I know the ones that we represent, they get very active. They like to take a board seat. They like to make introductions. You know, we've got one uh, VC we represent where every email that he sends out with his investor updates to the, to, to the limited partners, he includes at the bottom, Hey, here's our portfolio companies. Here's what they're looking for. They need an introduction to this company. They're looking to hire this person. They've got this question. Does anyone know? And there's been once or twice when through his investment network, right through that VC's investor network, they've been able to make an introduction into other companies. And that's very, very valuable. So those of you out there taking money from VCs, these are the sort of things you're looking for. It's not just the money, right? It's the it's the network, it's the resources and the influence. And I want to make sure that we're not scaring the founders away because, you know, I, I think when you hear, you know, as a founder, you hear, you know, something about an active investor or somebody who's going to, you know, be a loud mouth and have lots of opinions on things. That's not always a bad thing. That that can be very helpful and very useful. Yeah, that guy's success is tied pretty closely to yours, right? right. I mean, those guys, those firms or VC funds want you to succeed almost as much as you do. I mean, right. they they've got they want they've got money in it. They've got investors they got to report to. So yeah, I agree. I mean, active VCs, you know, I don't want this to people think of this like it's Carl Icahn or something, right? Some corporate raider. Active VCs are generally a good thing. Now, you go three, four years and you haven't grown the company or done another round, they might become uh, you know, a little antagonistic. But initially, and, it's usually a good thing. And that's why it's so important too when when you are exploring, um, you know, as a founder, you're exploring taking on outside capital. It's not just who can write me a check. You need to sit down and have in-depth conversations with these potential investors and make sure that the two of you get along um, because, you know, if you are going to be spending a lot of time with them, just like you spend a lot of time with your co-founders, you need to make sure that you get along with and can have, you know, probably pretty difficult conversations with your investors. I don't think there's anything wrong with interviewing your VCs the same way that they're interviewing you, especially if you, if you're you know, fortunate enough to garner multiple term sheets. But if you have a VC that's got great terms, but you just don't like them and you don't think you're going to get along, boy, you really want to think long and hard about going out and finding someone else. And don't take that check and think, well, you know, you know, after the investment's Things done, will they'll, change. they'll change. Yeah. No, early on, before they cut the check is when they're probably their nicest. Right. Yeah, that's I absolutely agree with that. Okay, so the next section, Aaron, is they talk about angel investors, yeah. something we're very comfortable with. We see all the time. Angel investors, 
usually not the first money in. So the first money in a typical round, there is no typical round, right? But if I were to look at the plurality, not the majority, right. but the plurality of deals, you're usually going to know friends and family first. And let's get this out there because it's something we talk about all the time. I want to make sure we cover it. Friends and family is usually not the smartest money in. No. Not that your friends and family aren't smart. They may be, but they're probably not venture smart. Yeah, and I mean, just like you said, you know, the you know, VCs aren't investing so much in the company as they are in the founders. This is even more true with the friends and family round. They, your friends and family probably don't have experience investing in in startup companies, but they're investing in you, their son, daughter, niece, nephew, whatever. And they're going to throw a $10,000 check because like Aaron said, they're related to you or you guys were you know, sorority sisters or whatnot, and they're not doing a ton of due diligence. So a couple of issues we see with this, I want you to be aware of. One, inflated valuations early on. You go out, your family's willing to give you money at a $5 million valuation. You're really uh, making it difficult. You're, you're going to make your next round very difficult, right? If you're out of the gate, pre-revenue, pre-MVP, if you're at a $5 million valuation, you're going to make things very difficult for yourself for the next round. The next thing is too many people on the cap table, right? We see this all the right. time. You know, They grab $25,000 checks or 10 $10,000 checks. And then if you're going to do that, you want to structure them as safe or put them all into one entity or convertible notes. Man, when these things are equity and now they're shareholders and you got to run and chase them down to get signatures on things or they want to show up and have meetings. I think one of the things that they mentioned in here was you have to be able to separate business, right? That doesn't mean that every family holiday or birthday party is an opportunity to have a shareholders meeting. It's not an investor meeting where you have to provide them an update and tell them how the company's going. I mean, obviously... You know, at those events, you're talking about work and and whatnot, but separate it. So friends and family, they play a very vital role in the ecosystem. I don't want to cut them out. I mean, we want to encourage it, but you want to be smart about the way you do it. You know, a lot of times people come to the lawyer after the friends and family round. If you came to us before the friends and family round, even for a very reasonable price, we can point you into a safe, make it super easy. The transactional costs are really low, but make it nice and clean. Aaron, how often do we spend a lot of time getting the target when we're VC side to clean up their cap table before yeah. we'll invest? No, right? it's, yeah, the, these, these early investment rounds tend to have lots of small checks. So the friends and family is typically the first round. Then you have your angel round. I thought the book did a really good job of talking about angels and then super angels and angel syndicates, which is absolutely what we've seen the development of here, right? I mean, Aaron, you know, you've been here a couple of years or three years now. And I started, we started the Dallas Angel Network, I think almost six years ago. And when we started that, it was just a bunch of loose guys investing $10,000, $20,000 at a time. And they were able to get into a lot of different deals. There wasn't a lot of competition for it, but it wasn't real sophisticated. It wasn't real clean. They weren't banding together. So really the company was driving the terms. Then you started to see what CTAN was doing down in Austin and North Texas Angel Network was doing that a little bit up here. But we were able to do this at Dallas Angel Network to start to coordinate deals or syndicate deals through the angel. So even if it's not one entity, but they're banding together and they're now because you have a $250,000 check instead of a $25,000 check, the angels can write, excuse me, can dictate or get better terms. And it, I think the process is better that way. Uh, now, I do think that a lot of early stage financings have become rather commoditized. So the terms are pretty typical. If you come and work through us, we're going to put terms out there. We're not trying to screw the unsophisticated early stage investor. We're going to give you terms that we think are fair, but set you up for future financings. But I do believe that 
angels and that this is you know already the case been the case for a long time it's in the valley it's been the case for a long time in new york and probably in austin but in dallas we're getting there as well to where the angels are getting smarter they're banding together they're making better deals but it's just better for everyone because even though the angels might be getting slightly better deal terms today than they were three years ago because they're smarter and they're banding together the deals are a lot cleaner which makes it better for the future yeah you know i don't think it's any secret or any surprise to people that there are standardized documents out there you know if if it's an early round equity um raise you're going to be looking at the documents from um seed.com which i think are fenwick and west documents and then if it's a later stage uh, you know later stage series a or above you're going to be looking at nbca documents and so um yeah having those you know the terms the, the specific terms, the details, the you know the nuts and bolts aren't standardized. That's going to be a negotiated agreement between the investor and the the company. But you know, in terms of how these documents look, and you know, if it's going to be participating preferred, then you have this language. But if it's non-participating preferred, then you have this language. Um, that has become pretty, like you said, commoditized. And you can go and read reports, you know, different law firms or consulting firms will put reports out there to help you understand what you are seeing more of, you know, whether it's mostly participating preferred or non-participating preferred. You say law firms put that information out there. That's right. Including us. Oh, right? really? So check us out, VelaWoodLaw.com. Look at our reports, which I think you can get to by the startups page. And we have posted in the last couple of years what we're seeing in Dallas, at least. But we do read those studies, Aaron, because I know that we we use that when we're helping our clients understand what's market. All right. So you've got your, you know, we started with VCs, we kind of went backwards, but then, you know, friends and family round first, then an angel round, then a VC round is typically what you would see. Um, so those are the players. Again, to emphasize, they're not all the same. You know, VCs can cross over, like Aaron mentioned, between different uh, levels of investment or kind of industry focus. Same with angels. You might have angels who are write $250,000 checks. I know there's one here in Dallas who's pretty comfortable doing that. He writes very large checks, gets in on great deals. Um, a lot of angels like to do a little more diversity and write ten, twenty-five thousand dollars checks. Uh, maybe someone just dipping t- their toe in the water; it's their first one, and they might need a little bit more education. That's where having a good lawyer can help, right? There's been a lot of times when we get on the phone with an angel investor who wants to just understand how things work. Obviously, we represent the company, but if the angel investor is only investing $25,000, they might not want to spend $2,500 with an attorney. So if they can talk to us and we can explain, hey, look, this is a standard deal docs. Here's where you can read up more on it. Here's where we got it from. It can usually help them to feel more comfortable with it. And your startup attorney will be able to help you with things like that. All right. The next thing I want to talk about, we talked about a little bit, is the lawyer. So let's talk about the lawyer's role, Aaron, beyond just preparing the docs, right? So let's just say that we've got a client who um, is going to undergo a series A round. You know, How can we help the client? And from our perspective, what's the best way for the client to approach us about doing that series A round? Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of approaching us, we, we want to be involved as early as possible just because um, it's a lot easier, uh, you know, not just, you know, making my life easier, but it's a lot easier to, uh, work a good deal if you're involved early on and you can make sure that, you know, the founder isn't promising something to the VC that they can't deliver. Um, and so getting us early, uh, involved early on and then, um, making sure that 
we are kept in the loop. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many times the, you know, the founders will have conversations with the VC. We don't need to be part of every conversation that the founders have with the VC, but we need to know, Hey, you know, we, we changed the valuation from X to Y, or, you know, we're dropping the investment amount, but, um, you know, because that's going to impact how we are drafting these documents. You know, in a perfect world, when we got ready for Series A, we would have had a nice, clean, button-up seed round or a nice, clean, and button-up friends and family round. A lot of times, that's not the case for a number of reasons. The, the company might not be keeping us informed, usually because the company thinks that they're trying to save money and not using the lawyer. They might not have the resources to do it, or they didn't have good counsel, and then they're just coming to us right before the Series A round. This is you know pretty typical. We get a lot of this. And maybe they were just using someone who wasn't a, you know experienced venture attorney to get to that point. One of the things we can do is we can help you identify and clear up any sensitive issues that you may have, right? Whether there's a fussy investor, early stage investor, there's a co-founder issue, there's an IP issue. Boy, would we rather have that buttoned up. And then we'll disclose it when we get to due diligence, but it's better to be disclosing that during due diligence rather than fixing it. Right. So yes, as much advance notice as you can have, fantastic. Just like VCs don't like to be surprised, attorneys don't like to be surprised right. either. You can make things very difficult for your attorney if you're showing up in due diligence and say, oh, by the way, this co-founder never signed his deal and he's been threatening about competing. Right, yes. And we see that stuff happen all... If you tell us that ahead of time, we can get out ahead of that. And then you just let the VC know. You know here's one thing about VCs, guys. They see this stuff all the time. Founders get really worried about the hair that they might have on their deal or the warts they might have. It's It's fine. VCs are going to be comfortable with that. They just want to know about it. Right. And if if they are willing to cut you a check, some little hiccup along the way isn't going to make them say, you know what, we're out. Um, you know, if, if, if you're on that thin of ice with a particular investor, chances are they're not investing anyway. I think most VCs going to it expecting to find something like that, right? right? So yeah, I, I totally agree with Aaron there, but let us know ahead of time. Let your lawyer know what sensitive issues you might have that need to be worked through. And then also, as Aaron said, yeah, the, the, the more we're involved, the better. Not only are we here to help you with the, uh, with the term sheet and then drafting the documents, but also how to maintain your business, how to keep running your business during the process. How much do you tell your employees about this, right? A lot of times employees start to get their eyes start to get real big, looking what that option pool is going to look like or um, what the post money valuation is going to be. And they want a bunch of ideas and then they start playing with the uh, exit hypothetical calculators and stuff, you know, how to manage that, how much you tell your employees when you talk to your investors, we get that all the time, right? So uh, XYZ VC reaches out to our clients and says, Hey, we're interested. Let's talk. Is that the time to go talk to your investors? The answer is no, right? right. Let's, let's wait until we, it's the VC's job to be interested, right? Yes. It's a VC's job to uh, to make a pass at you. Whether they're going to take you out on a date and then marry you, that's a long ways from happening. So you want to be a little bit more certain that there's, uh, there's something building there. Uh, and we can guide you through that. And then also just you as an individual, hopefully you're reading this book, you're listening to this podcast, but so that you can be sharp when you're talking to, because a lot of times, you know, lawyers generally talk to lawyers, right? Aaron and I aren't going to get involved and call your VC and talk to your VC. We'll talk to the lawyer or if the VC has questions with the lawyer on the phone, perhaps so. But we can help the entrepreneur to be educated so that when they're, because the VC is pretty educated about these things. Right. So the VC is talking to the, uh, when entrepreneurs talking to the VC, that they're ready to do that. The the VC's job is to do investments. That's all they do. When you're a founder, when you're an entrepreneur, your primary line of business is not raising money. Your primary line of business is 
whatever your startup is doing. And so uh, chances are the founders, the entrepreneurs are going to have a lot more questions than the VCs are. And, you know, as an attorney who is mostly company side, I want my clients to be asking me those questions and not be asking the VCs those questions. When we're investor side, one of the first things we do is once we find out who the counsel on the other side is, is we go look to see if they've done this before, right? Because right? if they've done this before, you and I know it's just going to make the process that much easier. So having a, an attorney who's done this a lot, and I, I really like what Brad and Jason said. They didn't. They, they said, look, you don't have to leave your current attorney and go to a big firm. Like Find someone that you're comfortable with. And you know we've got clients we've been working with for years and years, so we have that personal relationship. But knowing our clients being able to know that we do VC work makes this a lot easier for them to go talk to VCs and stuff. And, um, you know, we had great experiences with that. All right. The last part, the last player that they mentioned, I do want to talk about is they call it mentor. You know, we typically call Advisor. them advisors. Yeah. And there's been a lot of talk around the office about advisors. We just put up a, a blog talking about how much equity should you give to your advisors or your current or your early stage, uh, your early stage employees or early stage service providers. And you can check that out on our blog. But they're calling mentors. You know, one of the things I think that they mentioned is uh, in the entrepreneur's perspective, Aaron, on page 17, he says, the entrepreneur wrote, there's not a, there's no reason not to give someone a small success fee if they help you raise money. No. You no. can't do that unless that person is a licensed broker, dealer, or investment advisor. So, or they have a finder's license, and which is not that hard to get. But man, you cannot go out just giving everyone success fees. It's to be a violation of SEC or, or potentially blue sky rules. I was really, really shocked to see that in there. However, there are tons and tons of mentors and advisors out there who do this, who facilitate these types of deals, and they are properly licensed. Right. So I'm not saying that it doesn't happen. It certainly right. happens all the time. But man, that's one of the biggest red flags for us, right? We get our client will email us, afford us an email that says, hey, this advisor or mentor said that they want to help us and they're going to charge us this much. Should we do that? Our first response back is always, sure, just ask them what their investment advisor number is or their broker dealer number is. That usually shuts down that conversation pretty quickly. Well, and that's the thing is like, there's no issue paying advisors for providing advisory services. That's correct. The problem is when it gets into paying or compensating people for bringing you investors that's correct. or, you know, paying them for the success of the investment. Um, that's when you run into issues. Just consult with your attorney on that. But let's talk about the positive advisors. Very, very valuable. I believe uh, we, a lot of our clients rely pretty heavily on these guys. You know, when you're an early stage company, you really don't need to add people to your board yet. It's a little cumbersome. The board members don't want it because they're going to have uh, liability, right? right. As, as a director of the company, you don't want to be buying director's insurance, DNO insurance at a real early stage. So don't have, just set yourself or maybe the co-founders of the directors real early stage. But bring in people to your advisory board, keep them posted. Our standard advisory template, this is something that you know, we've cultivated over the years. We expect the advisors to spend between two to four hours a month, right? Answering emails, responding to phone calls, I guess we'd be answering phone calls, responding emails. Probably responding email probably makes more sense. Maybe you have an in-person meeting from time to time, making introductions, helping with business strategy. It's not a huge burden, but your advisor should be someone who can be there to bounce ideas off of, especially when you're going through a financing. So I know we have one VC client who is vocal about not paying advisors at all, and and you know. Uh, 
let's get, let's make sure we're clear not paying them and not compensating right, them with equity right just you know relying basically on on the goodwill of the advisor right. to provide advisory services to the company um i don't think that's the right answer yeah but well what i will say is if you are compensating these advisors whether it's in stock whether it's in cash make sure you're using them you know right. don't don't have an advisor agreement that entitles them to two percent of the company and then just sit there and not use them and right. let their equity vest because you're going to get to a point maybe in four years where you say well they never provided any service so let's just go ahead and recapture that equity we had that with a client who recently went right. underwent a two million dollar series a and the client was we we're going through and clean up the cap table yeah as we were getting ready for uh for the transaction and the client says well this guy never did anything. I want to recapture those shares. And we went back and looked at the docs and we just didn't. We didn't have the right to do that. Right. And it becomes the burdens on the company or on the founder, right? right. To to get the advisors doing stuff. Yeah, I don't agree with that either that you shouldn't compensate your advisors. I think a, a very, you know, 0.25, 2% if they're day one right. and they're very helpful and they're an industry leader and they're making all kinds of connections. 0. 0.25 to 0.5% is typically what we see. And I'm okay with that early stage. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. I just think it's hard to convince someone to work for you for free. Right. I don't see why anyone yeah. would do that. And we should encourage that VC to go be advisor to a bunch of people and see how he or she likes it. Exactly. All right. So I think that's all I had for chapter one. You got anything else, Aaron? I got nothing. All right. Really appreciate it. Chapter two um, is called how to raise money. We will talk about that next Monday. So, Aaron, homework, read How to Raise Money. Okay. That is it for episode one of Venture Deals Review. Just a few things to remind you about. Show notes are on VelaWoodLaw.com. Click on blog and then podcasts. You'll see the Office Hours podcast. Follow us on Twitter at VelaWoodLaw or on Instagram at VelaWood. Questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Podcasts at VelaWoodLaw.com. And finally, and most importantly, please rate and review us on iTunes. And subscribe. And subscribe. Yes. Second most importantly. Right. Equally most importantly. Right. Okay. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon.